Welcome back to the uh, the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm uh, I'm really happy to have a couple of uh, good friends back on with me, Chuck Adams and Corbin Metz, both with uh, the Coeptis uh, Consulting Group. Coeptis is uh, their buy side M and A advisors, and uh, I love the backgrounds. Both came from uh, GE, have moved into uh, a little bit of entrepreneurship. They're betting on themselves and uh, just ready for some good conversations today. So, thanks for coming back on, guys. Thanks for having us, Craig. We appreciate it. What's happening in buy side M and A right now? Let's talk about a little bit about what you guys are talking about a little bit about what you guys are doing, some of the engagements you're involved in, and then we can roll from there. Sure. Yeah, I can go ahead and start if you don't mind, Corbin. And uh, and you know, Coeptis Consulting Group. You know, we over the years we've transformed, and we really like to focus on yeah the buy side M and A and and helping, as we say cut through the noise, find more deal flow, and just find some really good deals. <laughs> That's really what it's about. And we help, uh, we've helped private equity funds. We've also helped, we find two strategic buyers, people where they're out there looking for some good deals, especially in the lower middle market. But hey, where do we start? What does aerospace and defense or these other industries look like, right? How should we go about navigating that? And it's really what we do in a nutshell and also help on some growth side stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to add that um, coming from backgrounds, kind of spending um, over a decade in the industrial space with operations and product development and, and stuff, the A&D space is always expanding. And there's always something new and exciting going on across the supply chain and value chain more, more specifically. So kind of navigating that on the buy side of things, really helping strategic buyers be aware of kind of what might be happening today, but more importantly, what these things that are happening today are doing to your strategy and to your long-term plans when you're talking about growth and inorganic growth is very difficult um, these days with so many things and technology changing rapidly. So it's, it's always an adapting environment and there's a lot of really interesting things happening across A&D. It's one of the more exciting places to be right now, I think. For sure. And it, you know, we we look at what happened with COVID, right? And just things just took a pounding, right? Then we look at what things are happening now in, in the marketplace. And it's pretty crazy just how much it's bounced back, right? You know, you hear rumblings of recession. And, and sure, there's definitely some merit maybe to that, right? And we're not saying that that isn't something we should be aware of. But at the same time, just aerospace and defense, especially the commercial side, you know, I know you had a Alderman on a couple of weeks ago, right? And same thing. It's what we've seen too, where a lot of these lower middle market companies, especially below 100 million, the message we hear a lot is, I have all this demand and I have these contracts out for, for, for years, not just months. Some of them are really trying to serve a lot of these OEMs and tier ones. And they're just telling us, we, we, got, we got contracts and we got unit flow, right? To push out the door whether it's MRO or it's it's manufacturing, and we just don't have the capital or we just don't have the capacity. That's what we've heard a lot on anywhere throughout the United States. And, and I think to kind of come back to the original point there, Craig, I think where we try to differentiate ourselves is, as, as Corbin was alluding to, right? It's not just being investment bankers and something, and we, we are registered with a broker-dealer. It's more than that, right? It's more about your strategy and looking at the big picture, going in, and not just looking at a shop and having my dress shoes on, right? Oh, look, mm -hmm. that's a nice shop. Being that we came from that and I was an engineer mm -hmm. and we worked together at GE, right? At 
no, <laughs> there's a lot that goes on in a shop and you got to know what you're looking for. So we try to bring that whole suite of, it's yeah. not just the financials, it's the operations, the tech, like what are they doing? What's their goal? And are they even a good shop as weird as that sounds? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, look, I, I mean, uh, you know, it's in, uh, and as you guys will attest, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure as you're seeing it, the smaller middle market, they're getting squeezed at every level. Every costs are up, fuels up, labor prices up. And then labor you know, relations are very challenging right now too. In what way? There's a lot of uh, turmoil in the uh, union space. So a lot of contract negotiations are coming up for renewal and things like that. So yeah, ultimately it, it's, it's impacting the little, the small, medium, little guys the most. And um, they're the ones that are kind of bolstering the rest of the chain. So it's, it's making it kind of a tumultuous time to kind of borrow money and also to find people that are going to build and, and produce the goods that you're looking for. And it's cross industry, but um, because of the depth within the value chain across A&D, it's even more impactful in yeah. this industry. Yeah. And it's not yeah. like, you know, your small suppliers. I mean, everybody you have to do is look at labor relations, look at the UAW right now. And say, hey, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Right. And everybody, yeah, everybody's following that. But then you look at your smaller middle market suppliers who you got very little pricing power, you know, and they're getting squeezed with payment terms and, and everything else, you know, you know, material prices are up and you're thinking about, you know, how do you keep a healthy supply chain? If you're, you know, if the OEMs and the tier ones aren't, you know, offering better pricing to their suppliers. How do you keep your supply chain healthy? And that's the thing that bothers me the most. I mean, it's you lose a supplier, it takes a year to qualify a new one or more. Yeah, it, I would say that's what it comes down to. Those three things I think that we've seen, you know, Corbett and I over the last four to six months is those three things. The first one is labor. Everybody's always saying labor, 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 and it, and it's tough right now. And the second one is with the interest rates rising, et cetera, financials. So even if they have the labor, which we've seen with some people we've been talking to, trying to keep uh, accounts receivable flowing and waiting on all these payment terms, like you said, they're getting squeezed. And so we've seen challenging cash crunch situations. And then, working yeah. Capital. Yeah, yeah working capital. Yeah, 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 yeah. The working capital, let's use the right term, yeah. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. but then the third thing, thing too, yeah, for sure, it's just... These, these material pr pricing and the cost of goods sold, right? It's just going up. And we've seen that in contracts because think about it, you know, you had a Gulfstream contract or a Lockheed contract that you had signed back in 18, 19 mm -hmm. when things were a lot different. And some of these small suppliers we've seen personally, they'll say, oh, great, I got a five to six year contract on this program, right? Mm -hmm. And even if they're on a good program, whether it's a an F-35 versus a 737 Max versus, a, you know, some of the other ones that aren't doing so well, even if you're on a good program, a lot of them went into it without material escalation clauses or, or mm -hmm. some of those type of contract stipulations. And so we're seeing a lot of gross margins in some places really get squeezed because they're like, well, I, I got to serve Gulfstream on this contract and I want to make them happy, for example. Not that it's specifically Gulfstream, but in order for me to keep servicing them, I got to buy from these material suppliers. And some people don't know that where which you probably know, you have to use certain vendors sometimes for material quality, which sounds great from a quality perspective, and we're not bashing that. But then when it comes to the pricing and they keep raising prices, but you know, you got to keep selling Gulfstream the this particular price on this particular part, it's just squeezing them out and it's causing a big headache. 
you guys both are XGE. Everybody knows about the the old ballroom bidding process where you you bring your suppliers to the hotel and beat the you know, beat the yep. snot out of them until yeah, Corbin. Until <laughs> oh, Corbin, yeah. yeah, go for it. Has <laughs> GE got hum- is GE humbled now a little bit with that process, or they they realize that maybe that's not such a good idea anymore? Uh, yeah, the, protecting the suppliers is maybe a little bit more invitation than beating them up. I can't really speak for what they're doing now. Um, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, effectively, I would think strategically they would want to humble up a little bit because that was a very aggressive way to approach the conversations that are becoming more difficult now. So I don't really know. That's a good question. <laughs> I think it's something we saw Corbin too back then. And we even said, you know, we, and we've done some consulting work too, for some large OEMs in tier one since we left GE within Coeptis and other places. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one thing we've, we've noticed across the board is that some, especially of the U S side, the OEMs and tier ones. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they want to race to the bottom and it's like, no, especially I think COVID, it was mm-hmm. kind of a blessing in disguise. It's like, no, like you need to partner with your suppliers. You need to have good collaborative relationships. And that's something I think at least we on our end, Corbin, have been pushing because we've seen both ends and you know, these are yeah. mom and pops and, but also just good companies with great management that want to serve these OEMs and tier ones, but don't turn it in as some kind of, what's the word, like none with a ruler or, <laughs> You know, <laughs> this adversary adversarial relationship right. so yeah yeah we're all yeah. in the canoe what's uh so you guys are you know you're, you're obviously you're doing the buy side and a lot of it's strategy and and what do you see what trends are you seeing more towards the strategy side of the house is there anything that you know as you as you go into these shops you're 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 seeing trends as to what they can do better uh, I can add a couple points and then Corbin, and I would say the first one by far, and we were alluding to this before, right, uh, before the call of of just diversification is definitely one of them. It's something that all of them are really trying to do and they're exploring. I think everything we've done in some of our current mandates, Corbin, we've seen that where all of them are saying, yeah, I got these contracts, but I want to diversify. I want to develop business with different OEMs and also even different industries too. And we especially see that up in the, you know, I'm up in Boise, Idaho, and we're close to the Northwest and the big one going around is Boeing, right? Boeing is getting pummeled and and in turn, what are they doing? They're pumping a lot of their suppliers and I'm not necessarily faulting all the people at Boeing. Obviously there's a lot of brilliant people there, but the suppliers are getting pummeled that are really reliant on Boeing. And the question that goes around all the trade shows, all the conferences, especially up in the Northwest is, well, where can we go find more business? How can we diversify? Not even in just aerospace and defense, but also in the medical, into nuclear, you know, into even new technologies like additives. So that's something we've seen across the board in an M&A. And so when we're approaching targets and looking at them, all of them seem to be very conscious of that, which is a good thing for their business. But mm-hmm. I think I've seen a much bigger focus in it now than we did before COVID for sure. Anything to add, Corbin? Or? Yeah, I mean, just from a diversification standpoint, it's on the supply side of things and on the product, you know, on the output. So like yeah. looking at kind of de-risking where you have um, like sole source suppliers, for example, like that's mm-hmm. kind yep. of ultimately a part of the conversation now, whereas it wasn't necessarily 
as uh, strategic before. And then on the diversification, on the output side of things, looking for different ways that you can start growing into the products that a good strategic fit might have or what you could offer to bring to the table from an innovation standpoint, something new. Um, ultimately, like that would be a really good benefit to that particular. Yeah. The last thing that we've seen too, because the big discussion has been around when we look at the PE side of the house, dry powder, everybody's talking about it, right? There's a lot of dry powder out there and they're all trying to seek a place to park that, right? And find a good investment and stuff. I think I could see why the PE space and just people are, you know, we've seen some activity, right? But I think we're going to start seeing more and more going forward because there is a lot of dry powder. There's a lot of places they want to park a lot of industrial capital. I could see why people have been cautious, but as I heard like on the podcast with Bill the other day, right? Deals are still happening. People aren't really gun shy about it. And I mean, I look at our clients too. It's not always about interest rates, right? That mm -hmm. is a factor, but people still want to find those good deals and there's still good places to find them. And with the amount of baby boomers right now, especially that are starting to retire, and as well as, as we saw, right, in 2021, 2020, right? People would want to sell or they were thinking about getting out of the business. And what was the what was the thing we heard? Oh, well, I needed to wait or I wanted to wait. Well, now everybody, it's more of a pressing matter of them wanting to get out of the business, I think. And so there's a lot of just great tier two, tier three suppliers out there. It's just a matter of finding them and develop them relationship and seeing what, what makes sense. Does private equity come into the space a little bit less levered up? I mean, yeah, if there's a lot of dry powder out there, do they, you know, can they still meet their IRRs with less leverage or is it still a leverage game and we'll just figure out interest rates as they as as they go along that's a good question i would say that i think that there's still a big enough irr to justify in a way because we've been looking at some deals on our side where we kind of pose the question to them not necessarily private equity even but just the deal itself and we still see some opportunities out there where private equity would be willing to maybe not necessarily lever up completely, right? Especially if you're doing things like add-on or bolt-on acquisitions. Now, platforms, yeah, that's a lot of, that's mm -hmm. a large, large acquisition. And I'm sure they're going to really be looking at that, you know, mm -hmm. interest rate, et cetera. But keep in mind too, the larger the fund, right? Typically they can find better terms anyway, in some ways, right? Not always, but I think that's kind of my comment on that. And what I've seen is that is if the deals are small enough and it's like, ah, okay, it's a bolt on. Okay. We'll just do mo mostly equity, right? Like, you know, there, there's the IRR mm -hmm. and the EBITDA multiple, you know, grouping it together effect, right. That you can get sometimes with roll-up mm -hmm. strategies, especially. So it's kind of my comments. I don't know if Corbin, you had anything else, but. Yeah. I was just going to add in then um, to that is ultimately i think it kind of depends on what space they're playing into like what type of strategy they have going in to diversify their own risk yeah and, and every private equity just like any strategic buyer every private equity fund it, it's it's beautiful and a curse depending on how you look at it they're all different they all take on risks different they have different timelines there's lots of permanent equity and family offices right it just really depends on who you're working with and what their timeline is. No doubt. I got you. What do, where do you see the opportunities? Is it manufacturing? Is it MRO? A lot of people are saying engine MRO right now has got a long way to run. 
is it airframes, is it engines, is it the aftermarket, is it the digital space? Where do you guys see the most opportunities on the buy side? Oh, that's that's a that's that a, a question. question. <laughs> oh, the the, the 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 question is yes or you know the answer right, <laughs> but uh, it depends. Again, it depends on what you're after, right? There is, like we said, you know, there's there's droves, and I don't have a statistic right now. I know they're out there. There's so many business owners that are in their late 50s, 60s, right? That are and even older that are trying to get out of their businesses, right? They've built it over the last 20 or 30 years. And there's tons of businesses and they're all over the place. Now we've always said, right, especially if you're a private equity person and you're trying to roll up, right? There are some areas that are more ripe for that than others. You know, I think of, I think the classic one we've seen that many people have been looking at is things like accessories, right? It's such a fragmented market. And we've known this for years and we said, yeah, you want to look for competitive advantages or IP. Not that that's particularly a concern with MRO specifically, but it can be. And really rolling up those areas where it's like, guys, nobody's, this is so fragmented and there's contracts all over the place, right? Um, there's that, but then also on the airframe side, or maybe the manufacturing side is a better way too. There's just a lot of good companies that just have solid, good contracts. And as long as Corbin mentioned, you're managing the cost a little bit on the supplier side, right? And you're, you know, thinking about sole sourcing and suppliers and stuff, you got some pretty stable cash flow in a lot of those airframes and those, what's the word I'm looking for? Non-sexy areas, <laughs> if I can say that, right? Well, those areas that, you know, oh, okay, maybe they're not cutting edge, but but hey, those are great areas that are stable and you're going to, sure, it's a, it's a spar, but Hey, it's, it's somebody's got to do it. it oh, yeah, overhauling independent drive generators isn't really uh it's not all that sexy or pretty, but you can make money doing it. So, and there's oh, a lot yeah. of people out there doing it. So, hydraulic components, fuel, you know, fuel accessories, you know, etc., fuel pumps. There's a huge aftermarket. Yeah. And I think with space coming along too, we've noticed too over the last year. Space I would say is it's it's growing faster than people think it is. And there's a big renewal and focus on that as well, especially on the commercial side. There was always this, oh, you know, over the last five years, oh, all this focus on military, oh, but you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles or satellites. Or mm-hmm. I say, yeah, but but the commercial side, especially with SpaceX and Blue Origin pushing on the the established players, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on in the space realm, and they need machine parts and they need avionics type of skills right in their yep. parts etc in electronics manufacturing and so we see that also taking off a lot in the you know <laughs> in the future so yeah awesome i love it no it's all good all right i'm gonna shift gears now i get a lot of people calling me up i go do i play it safe go to a big company go to a different company smaller company and you know, let's let's talk about y'all's careers corbin you uh you were on the fast track at ge you know, ge engines you know, the, uh, the the management program, et cetera. You, how long were you with GE? Uh, 11 years. 11 years, and you decided to step out and, and bet on yourself. And Chuck, you're kind of, the same, kind of the same way. Corbin, what, what made you decide to, what, what made you die? What made you guys decide to step out, bet on yourselves? And how, you, how do you like entrepreneurial versus, you know, big corporate? And what are you seeing in the little companies and how are you seeing the dynamics between what you're doing and the big companies and the little companies, et cetera? Yeah. What drew me into GE and what I fell in love with um, 
kind of working in corporate America is the reason why I wanted to do entrepreneurship as well. Kind of a double-edged sword. What was really exciting about corporate America and the opportunities is, is the opportunity, right? You don't know what you don't know and you're getting into this space and you're a young engineer and you're just like, teach me everything. I'm a sponge. I get to absorb, right? And I think that was fantastic. It was great experience. And what I was able to do through that um, experience is kind of navigate to find different areas and different products and different businesses and different teams, different processes, different operations um, that I was able to expose to pretty easily through the corporate America structure. So it was really nice to kind of explore and learn from some of the best and brightest minds that we have. But unfortunately, you can kind of get lost in that space too, right? And um, from a leadership standpoint, I felt like sometimes I wasn't being heard. I had the chance to say, okay, well, these skills and being able to navigate and adapt and, and kind of what I've learned from what's going on in different shops and, and across the different uh, industries. I want to be able to take that, you know, I want to be able to, to own it. I want to be able to fail and, and have those mm-hmm. failures that, that I, that I take on, but I also want to have those wins and um, the opportunity to kind of navigate that across with a partner like Chuck has been a really great breath of fresh air. Cause it, it gives life into kind of what, what we're doing, right. Is I want to help more people. And I felt like this is the best way to help more people is really, get out of that organization and um, start matchmaking in a new one effectively. <laughs> yeah. Was it scary? How yes. did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel about you know, walking out? I mean, this is, you know, these are ongoing. Com- you know, I talk to people and I'm like, Hey, look, I'm thinking about walking out of Raytheon or Safran and I'm going to yeah. go to this little company and you're like, Hey, look, you know, you're betting on yourself. You know, how, how good do you feel about your skills and what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, quit quit looking at the organization, but you know, think about your skills and what you're doing, and and how do you feel about yeah you know, where where you where you fall in the right in grand scheme? It's a huge opportunity. I mean, you could be a small fish in a big pond, or you could be a big fish in a small pond, and I think that's a it's going to be scary either way. Um, mm-hmm. But fear is what holds us back; it also lets us grow. Yeah. And so, ultimately, taking that opportunity, you can. I think it's all about attitude and understanding that you're not going to have the same kind of frameworks. That's the one big thing I've noticed is, is ultimately what has been given to you in such a large organization is a lot of standardization, a lot of frameworks, a lot of guidelines, a lot of, um, here's how you do it. Here's how you succeed. Here's how this will regress and all that kind of stuff. A lot of forward thinking, a lot of risk. You might have all of that responsibility now because you are a big fish in a small pond. So you can mm-hmm. take on more and you have more experience and opportunities to kind of navigate, uh, exploring that and helping people improve. I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is missing. The continuous improvement behaviors and uh, trainings and things like that are really lacking. And that's where you can kind of come in and say, okay, well, this isn't here. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You can be that change. You can make mm-hmm. that happen. Chuck, I don't know. I've been. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> nodding my head. <laughs> <laughs> you might have a different, totally experience, though. Uh, well, I, I think 
we're obviously two peas in a pod, right? Being partners. And, and I agree, you know, I, a lot of what you said is what I was feeling with throughout my career. And I, and I was more stuck and I use the word stuck, unfortunately, if we talk about toward the end of my GE career in the engineering side. And while I was doing a lot of technical work, I was also, as you know, Corbin talked about this, Craig, a lot of the business side and the ops and, and going into shops and doing that. And, and I agree with the sentiment, you know, I, I, you know, I look at GE and I, even though we parted and stuff, right. And we went to do our own thing. There was just so much good. And we always say this too, right. A lot of these big organizations, you, you get this culture of mentality, right. Which can be almost group think like, or things mm -hmm. just kind of churn along. Right. And you got your standard processes, but you also meet some of the, just the best people, some of the best mm -hmm. mentors and, and we were talking about this the other day. The one thing I think GE did give us with all those processes and guidelines was really just a strict bar to set mm -hmm. for things. We've seen over and over in our work that our bar is, is really is high. We try to keep a high bar. Mm -hmm. We don't make recommendations for targets, for example, unless we really think it suits whoever we're working with, right? Or we don't. We really want to make sure that we're delivering, you know, the value and some, right? Mm -hmm. Like really pushing the bar. And I think that was a big blessing with GEs because at least for us, it really tried to set the bar high. And then we go work with other suppliers or tier two or tier three shops. And we're by no means perfect, but we're like, wow, I'm glad we can help set the bar high and create excellence. But yeah, I fell into a rut too, where I was kind of stuck in engineering you know, I was doing consulting work, et cetera, and I just wanted to branch out. And then that's when Corbin and I, back in, during COVID out of all times, right, we <laughs> we said, not only are we trying to start a business, let's do it right in the middle of a pandemic. Well, yeah, but, but that's where, <laughs> but, but I was making some notes today on something different. And it's like, you know, the biggest crises, can, you know, create the biggest opportunities for people, right? You think about like, let's go back, you go back to the 1300s where the the London, you know, London burning ended the Black Plague, right? The crisis was London's burning. The, the, the opportunity is the Black Plague, you know, killed all the rats and the Black Plague's over, right? So, yeah. you know, that's that's where people, I, I think, start to miss the boat. They think, well, I got fired. Well, there's your opportunity to go find something better for your own life. Yeah. I, I, I got that stuck. Echoes. Yeah. It was opportunity to to start fresh, to do our own thing, to be courageous, and it's been a it's a it's a very volatile journey, right, and a very rough one, and it still is. I mean, we have tough conversations, but but I'm glad that I have a partner that takes that very well, and we deals with my uh, weaknesses as a partner, and well, <laughs> I appreciate but, that. So, but my but my guess is also too the fact that you guys you got the GE experience. You tell me how this is all playing into your consulting group. You got the GE big company experience, but now you guys are down there. You're yeah, a couple entrepreneurs managing cash flow. Yeah, you, know, mm -hmm. you look at the checkbook. You look at the yeah you know, where the next you know, and now now all of a sudden you're relatable to your small suppliers. I get it. You guys are getting squeezed. You're looking at cash flow. You're looking at working capital. You're looking at everything else. We understand where you're coming from versus, you know, versus a big banker coming in who's, you know, got a big salary attached, right? Is that is that is that is that playing into the, is that relating to your to your customers? I mean, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I <laughs> it's 
there's more, it's empathy, right? You know, we don't have, like you said, entrepreneurship, you get it, right? We, we don't have this big corporate body or this security sitting behind us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everything we do as an entrepreneur, I've told people this too. It's like, why do entrepreneurs work so much or this or that? I'm like, well, first, I think it's passion to some extent, but more importantly, it's because it's do or die, right? You don't have a choice. You know, we, <laughs> we don't have a choice, right? I got, yeah. you know, a wife and two kids and no, like I'm doing it for them and for myself and just, you know, it's what I'm passionate about, right? And I really want to do this. And so, and there's no choice, right? Uh, that definitely helps. A little fire under your butt. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but well, and uh, we, can, yeah. we can focus on value, you know, like we can focus on delivering the value. So, and we have now the opportunity to say, no, it won't work for you. You know, right. like before, if you have other, you know, investors and, and different uh, stakeholders involved, you know, no might not be an option, you know, mm-hmm. and as a small business and as an entrepreneur, we can adapt and we are very agile and we're able to kind of go and do things that other people weren't with our experience and our background we have the language that can talk on both sides and that's ultimately what you're trying to do in a deal is get people to the table and we can help translate right the fact that we're also young in this space that's kind of an archaic or ancient um, industry there's also the opportunity that we've grown up learning and using the di- the digital space and and all the kind of um tools and technologies that mm-hmm. we're adapting and, and learning and growing with as well we try to make it really robust you know as chuck was saying we set the bar high but we also try to deliver that with our customers and that um try to yep. capture all of those things that they hadn't thought about but give it to them in a way that they also haven't maybe seen before dynamic data things that are going to be more helpful and robust and and have the longevity that some of the other things on the market today just simply don't have and without any of the experience they only have one siloed view of how finance needs to be run or how ops needs to be run or this is what our sales number is and we kind of see it all yeah i would say yeah for sure I, i think that's one of the differentiators one of the things that our clients have told us over and over and over, we've heard this multiple times and we're, we're, we we have pride in that, right? We're proud mm-hmm. of that where, wow, I haven't thought of this before. And we had that the other day. I didn't even think of that. It, it, that makes that, I don't know about you, Corvo, that makes me feel good inside because we're, we're trying to be advisors, which is what we're being, we're meant to do, right? It's what we're being paid for is to be is looking at the whole picture, but go, hey, have you thought of this, right? And what Corbin alluded to as well, we're very lean focused people, leather belt lean people. We don't, sure, GE could have imbued that a little bit on us, but again, that rigor, but just looking at things differently. It's not just using spreadsheets all the time or mm-hmm. PowerPoint pitches, right? I always think of our, our little database, right? It's like, no, I, I think what you need is this. And then it, yeah. Yeah, mind blowing, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know how to use PowerPoint. I'm like, if you if you want me to come and do a PowerPoint presentation, eight, uh, eight, we're done. So there's a time and a place, but nine times out of ten, I find it's not the place. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. But that's why I love working with small companies too. You know, I, somebody called me up when it's they're like, "Hey, I'm at Boeing and I want, yeah, I'm at Esterline and I want to go to Parker Hannifin." I'm like, "Why? It's just a you know, all you're doing is changing geography. I want to go from a big company to a big company. I'm like, why?" just changing geography that's why i like working with small companies because it's not about changing geographies it's about changing lives 
Mm-hmm. You're taking a you know, small company going from 10 million to 20 million, it's only, ten, you know, yeah, you say, well, it's only 10 million bucks, but it's a double, you doubled somebody's business. It changed their lives. Yep. Whereas 10 million bucks inside of you know, P&L at GE is rounding error. And, uh, yeah, drop in the bucket. You know, yeah. Like, well, we, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, that's what we spend in travel in January. That's our January travel budget. Well, all right. Yeah. Deal, and you so. get desensitized. I feel like when you're constantly exposed to all of that, you're really, it, it, Mm-hmm. It affects the way you make decisions, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does kind of change the way you you view c- certain conversations or negotiations. So. Yeah. The impact of life is a big, like, that's totally true, Craig, because I just think about the projects that I've done in the past and knowing the amounts, tens of millions of dollars a year that I've worked on and helped save the company GE money or, you know, these big companies. And again, like you said, it's a rounding error. And, but to us, I think that was one of the things that disillusioned me a little bit was here I am saving $10 million on one part a year through all this hard effort and work. And what do you get? Right. A pat on the back. Right. And that's about it. Your job. Maybe, maybe maybe a little bonus and a kiss. Can I take 1% of that? Just one, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, but no, but then like you said, a 10 to 20, right. A doubling of business. I mean, that's a big deal. So I get it. Yeah, yeah I got it. Last question. Well, we'll, we'll I'm going to go back to your engines background and your GE. So yeah, obviously Raytheon and the gear turbo fans been in the news a lot. They just took a $3 billion charge. I think that's a little bit bigger than, I think it's a bigger deal than a lot of the media is, is making it out to be. Thoughts on that side of the house when you think about GTF versus Leap 1A, 1B, CFMs? Or is I it mean, not that big a deal? I mean, we might be biased. I mean, my my name is on some engineering drawings for the leap, but hey, you know. <laughs> and uh, but I, that's a good question. You know, when I've talked with people in the last few months, in even year or so, about that, that conversation has come up a lot. Not necessarily trying to create this comparison between the leap and the GTF. Obviously, they're competing, but really around how OEMs feel about it is really what it's about. I, I was getting questioned about that about six months ago, off offhand and nothing proprietary, but well, how do you feel that people like GE or CFM and Pratt & Whitney are really trying to make something succeed? I would say that on one end, yeah, at least my opinion, and Corbin, feel free to, to disagree or agree, but I would say that it, at least on paper, it, you know, at first you're like, oh, it's it might not be okay. It's three billion. All right, yeah, but you have to think about what the longevity of engines are, especially engines. You know, you look at airframes and other parts and stuff. They treat the life and they treat the asset a little differently. We know that the engines are one of those very high touch assets because you just have to fix them. You have to repair them a lot. They're very valuable pieces, the power plants and. What does it say about the GTF if you have to take those hits and you're struggling that much, right? Is there going to be doubts in the future about how reliable that engine's going to be? You know, it's like buying a, you know, a car, right? Yeah, sure. There's going to be little nitpicky things that break and stuff. I got a 2004 uh, Ford Focus. It's got 260,000 miles on it. People say, well, man, things might start breaking. Yeah, I fixed my own stuff, unfortunately. But uh but why, why do you keep that car? I say, hey, look, nothing major has really been hitting it over the last 20 years. And sure, the shocks might have to be changed. Yeah, this part might break. The other day, my reservoir, of my my radiator was getting a little, little old, but it's still pretty 
steady, tried and true. On the other hand, you get PT cruisers or something like that, or a Pinto or, <laughs> or an RV right? truck. Or an RV. Or an RV. Or an RV. <laughs> I would say an RV, you know, that even just that negative thing, even at the beginning can affect it. So my point is, is yeah, it might not be being played up enough because it's a reputation issue too, even if nothing will happen. So yeah, RVs, yeah, just, go for it, Corbin. I, mean, I just, uh, just think about it. It, you know, it, it puts the doubt, it, it, it puts the doubt, you know, you, your leasing companies and the, the, the buyers of engines and yeah. financing companies all of a sudden now it puts doubt in their mind and how much, you know, how much does that affect it going forward? Exactly. I see it. I see it. challenges there for sure. Red flags. Mm-hmm. Well, good. So, uh, Corbin, you're out in Eastern Tennessee and, uh, Chuck, you're out in Idaho. Yep. Yep. And all this good. How do folks get a hold of you guys? Uh, you can, uh, find us at our website, www.coeptacg. That's C O E P T I S CG.com. Or being that we're on your podcast, we're not afraid to give out necessarily our number. You can just contact me, I guess, 253-720-9058. And yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. I enjoyed it today. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pickett.